My name is Jose Alvarez. I teach at New York University School of Law. This is the second part of my first lecture, an introduction in history from the 1780s to early 1990s. This PowerPoint will guide listeners over the key developments that I will next cover, from the rise of diplomatic espousal over centuries to the negotiation of the Convention for the Settlement of Investment Disputes, or otherwise known as ICSID, in 1966. So if you follow the PowerPoint, you will see the key moments that I will be describing. For centuries, whenever foreign nationals and their businesses were adversely affected in their host states, those private parties' sole remedy under international law was to turn to their home states in the hope that that state would espouse their claim diplomatically. The sole mechanism anticipated to remedy harms to foreign investors produced in violation of international law that is, in violation of state responsibility to aliens, was therefore called diplomatic protection, whereby the home state of the investor would invoke the responsibility of the host state for its, foreign, for its wrongful act and claim that wrongful act as its own to defend. Diplomatic protection requires establishing a bond of nationality with the harmed investor. And that matter is determined under the state's rules for nationality within the limits set by international law. Under the rules later recognized by the International Court of Justice in Barcelona Traction, a case decided in 1970, the nationality of a corporation is determined by the laws where it was incorporated. Generally speaking, a corporation incorporated in the U.S. is a U.S. corporation. The rules of diplomatic espousal further require a showing of continuous nationality, namely proof that the individual or the entity has that bond of nationality both at the time that the injury occurred and at the time the espousing state presents that claim for resolution. In addition, under the customary law of espousal, an espousing state can only present a diplomatic claim on the investor's behalf upon a demonstration that the investor has exhausted all available and effective remedies in the local courts of the host state. The requirement to exhaust local remedies enabled the state accused of an international wrongful act to have an opportunity to fix the problem by its own means under its own domestic legal system before the problem was elevated to the international level. But from the standpoint of the foreign investor, diplomatic espousal was not an ideal solution. The requirement of exhausting local remedies was time-consuming, and there was nothing to ensure that the foreign investor's home state would take up the investor's claim even if that exhaustion were to occur. Given the many pending issues between states, a home state would need to determine whether it was really worth raising the interstate tensions between states by raising its nationals' claim of maltreatment to the diplomatic level. And many home states decided not to bother, particularly if the accused host state was politically powerful or there were other reasons not to displease it. In addition, under international law, even a successful espousal claim was deemed to be a harm done 
to the home state, not to the investor or the individual. And yes, it was to the home state a harm, but only because of the injured suffered to its national. This means that even if the home state were to secure payment of compensation through diplomatic espousal, international law itself did not ensure that the money it received would be turned over to the foreign investor. Under diplomatic espousal, states, not the harmed private investors, determined whether to bring the case, whether to waive the case, whether to settle such claims, and if they settled, for how much and to whom to pay. Despite its inadequacies, diplomatic espousal was the go-to solution for much of history. Between 1829 and 1910, the U.S. alone entered into some 40 arbitrations with Latin American countries on behalf of foreign investors, whose claims the U.S. espoused. These claims generated predictable resistance from the periphery, the Latin American states, towards the metropole, the United States, particularly during the period when the U.S. claimed that it was permissible to use force to collect debts owed by states in the Western Hemisphere to U.S. investors. This is why one of the best historical surveys of the development of the contemporary international investment regime and this is included in the short bibliography for this lecture, that article is entitled, quote, From Gunboats to Bits, The Evolution of Modern International Investment Law, close quote. That article by Thomas Johnson and Jonathan Gimlet picks up the story after the conclusion of the Jay Treaty. As those authors tell the story, the rise of international investment law is a progress narrative of how the turn to law tames the savage national impulse to use force to resolve transnational investment disputes. Others that are a bit more critical about the regime might see the protections international law extends to alien property as a less happy tale of how rich capital exporting states convinced poorer states to act against their best interests and accept foreign investors as something other than the exploiters that they seem to be. I will leave such normative judgments to others for purposes of this lecture, but I will discuss the critiques of the regime in my last lecture. But let me be clear from the outset, today's international investment regime is in turmoil. The debates over the wisdom of the Jay Treaty that I summarized at the start of this lecture continue to be relevant today. Virtually all of Hamilton's arguments in defense of that Jay Treaty remain contested, as is the favored method of resolving investment disputes that we use today, namely investor-state arbitration. Reading Hamilton's The Defense provokes a sense of deja vu. Johnson and Gimlet explain the evolution of the contemporary international investment regime as an attempt to make real Murish Vettel's statement back in 1758. Vettel had stated, quote, that whomever uses a citizen ill indirectly offends the states, which is bound to protect the citizen, close quote. Prior to World War I, states applied Vettel's rule through diplomatic espousals and if that did not lead to compliance through reprisals, remember those gunships, sometimes, as in the Jay Treaty, they established claims commission. 
They settled disputes between foreign investors and their host states then by diplomatic exchanges of notes, through arbitral rulings, by quiet or more public lump sum settlements, like the one that followed the Jay Treaty. Arbitration milestones that are important to the development of the investment regime that I will mention include some that do not involve disputes over investment. They include the precedent-setting Alabama Claims Arbitration of 1871 to 1872, and also the 1899 Peace Conference, which produced the Convention for the Pacific Settlement of International Disputes. That convention recognized arbitration as the most effective and equitable means of settling disputes that are not settled by diplomacy. It established the Permanent Court of Arbitration, or the PCA, at The Hague, which anticipated that states would conclude, as they did, general arbitration clauses within interstate treaties and agree to submit disputes under those treaties to the PCA. And those disputes would be determined under the PCA's arbitral rules. Over time, a leading source of cases before the PCA have indeed been investor state claims. By 1910, Western commentators like the U.S. Secretary of State Elahu Root could extract from his examination of diplomatic and arbitral practice what he argued was a customary international rule demanding that aliens be accorded above and beyond anything provided in national law what he called an international minimum standard of, treat of justice, close quote. This ill-defined standard required states to exercise due diligence to protect injuries to aliens, even if those harms were inflicted by private parties. And in the event injuries occurred, those states were not to, quote, deny justice, close quote, to such aliens. Denials of justice were defined by early 20th century commentators like Edwin Brochard to include wrongful expulsion of aliens, their false imprisonment, confiscatory breaches of contract, wanton pillage by government troops, confiscations of property by legislative act or by government decree, and a state's failure to punish a criminal offense that was committed even by a private party against an alien. Even at this early date, the assertion by Western scholars that aliens, including foreign investors, were owed more favorable treatment than might be extended by national law was not accepted by everyone. Most famously, Carlos Calvo, a Argentine jurist, had argued back in 1868 that foreign nationals were entitled to treatment no better than any extended by national law in the place where they, found, where they were found and that they could not resort to remedies such as arbitration outside those available to nationals where they were, namely in national courts. The so-called Calvo Doctrine was affirmed in a number of settlements or and agreements among Central and South American countries. Latin American states also often inserted a Calvo clause into their state contracts with foreign investors, thereby precluding resort to arbitration. For decades, these states, most famously Calvo's home state of Argentina, resisted international arbitration. That same group of states also insisted on the Drago Doctrine, 
originally enunciated by an Argentine foreign minister in 1902. The Drago Doctrine affirmed that military interventions to enforce debts owed to foreign nationals, so-called gunboat diplomacy, that this violated sovereign equality and therefore international law. Now, despite the Calvo Doctrine, the interwar period produced significant advances in the institutions and law of investment arbitration. These included the mixed arbitral tribunals established under the Treaty of Versailles of 1919 to resolve claims, including private claims, between Germany and the Allied powers. Those tribunals were charged with determining the level of compensation due to nationals of the Allied powers who had suffered wartime expropriations or other exceptional war measures affecting property. The Treaty of Versailles also established an important precedent it promoted the practice of according standing to individuals and not only to states between themselves. Under that treaty's framework for minority protection, Germany and Poland established an arbitral tribunal of Upper Silesia, which permitted individuals to make claims against both their own governments as well as that of the other contracting party. Most famously, the Covenant of the League of Nations established the Permanent Court of International Justice, PCIJ, which held its first session in 1922. The PCIJ issued a number of decisions that addressed the treatment of alien property that continue to be cited today. These include, most famously, a claim that started its life as a claim for compensation brought against Poland by Germany, by a German company, that is, in the Upper Silesia Tribunal that I've just mentioned. That claim became an often-cited PCIJ ruling, Chorzo Factory. Chorzo Factory is cited to this day by foreign investors seeking full compensation for lost property. It ruled that foreign nationals subjected to an unlawful expropriation are entitled to restitution of their property, or failing that, to damages that are the full equivalent to the lost property. Another significant development during this period was the increasing use of arbitration and concession agreements concluded between a state and a private company. Concession agreements are particularly common in the extractive industries where a company needs a state's permission to drill for oil in order to do business and the concession provides the terms under which the state grants this permission, for example. Among the most famous of arbitrations growing out of a concession agreement was the Lena Goldfield's ruling against the USSR which awarded 13 million pounds to the British Mining Company. As is clear from the Jay Treaty, international legal obligations on behalf of foreign investors emerged then from both treaty and customary international law sources. For centuries, the principal treaty source of such obligations were treaties of amity of, of friendship, commerce and navigation, or FCNs. The Jay Treaty itself was an early form of such a treaty of amity. These bilateral treaties sought to establish equality and reciprocity in commercial transactions, while the two states assured each other of non-discrimination with respect to commerce, navigation, and fishing rights, including the mutual protection of each other's citizens, vessels, and properties. Over time, a dense web of these bilateral FCNs began to include reciprocal protections, not only with respect to trade, but aspects of investment. 
They included clauses ensuring that property would not be taken except for a public purpose, nor without payment of prompt or just compensation. Post-World War II FCNs, concluded by the United States, included, in addition, guarantees to nationals and companies of either state that would emerge years later in bilateral investment treaties. These included mutual assurances of constant protection and security, a fair and equitable treatment, and most favored nation treatment, or MFN. Over time, the trade protections that were accorded under FCNs were displaced by multilateral arrangements under first the GATT and later the WTO. And over time, the FCN's investment protections were eventually overtaken by treaties that focused entirely on protecting foreign investors and investments as such, namely BITS. As I will discuss further in my second lecture, FCNs, which the U.S. stopped negotiating in the 1960s, but which largely remain in place today, were important precursors to today's dense web of international investment agreements. Even today, some of the case law cited in investor state disputes emerge from the interpretation of FCNs. Another significant set of developments in international investment law grew out of mass expropriations undertaken by revolutionary governments in the USSR, in Eastern Europe, and in Mexico. These mass takings often were done under the banner of agrarian reform, and they led to many foreign investor claims. Among the most prominent of these mass takings emerged from agrarian reforms begun in Mexico with the fall of Porfirio Diaz in 1910, and later continued under the Mexican Revolution. Mexico, like the Soviet Union and other states in this period, deny that they were owed that they owed any obligation to pay full compensation to foreign landowners. As was stated in the Mexican note of August 3, 1938, and I quote, this is from the Mexican side, quote, there does not exist in international law any principle universally accepted by countries nor by writers of treatises on this subject that would render obligatory the giving of adequate compensation for expropriations of a general and impersonal character. Nevertheless, Mexico admits, in obedience to her own laws, that she is indeed under an obligation to indemnify in an adequate manner, but the time and manner of such payment must be determined by her own laws. To this, the U.S. Secretary of State, Cordell Hull, responded on August 22, 1938, as follows, quote, The government of the United States merely adverts to a self-evident fact when it notes that the applicable precedents and recognized authorities on international law support its declaration that under every rule of law and equity, no government is entitled to expropriate private property for whatever purpose without provision for prompt, adequate, and effective compensation, close quote. The PowerPoint quotes these two notes, and it indicates the key points of between the U.S. and Mexico on that occasion. Mexico argued, as I suggested in this note of August 3rd, that international law leaves it up to each state to decide whether to expropriate property owned, owed by, owned by aliens and whether to pay 
to pay them for it. Hull argued, on the contrary, that international law required payment of prompt, adequate, and effective compensation on such occasions. U.S. Secretary of State's response has come to be known as the Hull Rule or the Hull Doctrine. Today, as I will discuss, the Hull Rule has been generally incorporated in present-day international investment agreements. It is also widely cited as the standard with respect to compensation that is owed under customary international law when a government takes the property of an individual investor. But to this day, the exact extent of compensation owed under customary international law and how it is calculated and whether prompt, adequate, and effective compensation is really owed when a state undertakes mass expropriations for government purposes as for, say, agrarian land reform, and it does so for both wealthy national landowners and foreigners, and both of their lands are seized and distributed to the public, whether in that case prompt, adequate, and effective compensation is owed remains contested. Indeed, even the 1986 U.S. Restatement of Foreign Relations suggested some ambiguity on this last point. The uncertainties with respect to the whole rule when it comes to mass expropriation results from basically two realities. First, the vast bulk of arbitral precedent deals with compensation that is owed for sporadic and individual takings, not mass takings. Most of these have not been the subject of international adjudication. Second, observers are aware of the discrepancy between the formal statement of treatise writers and reality. Despite the U.S.-Mexico exchange of notes and multi-year efforts to address those claims under a mixed claims commission, in the end, the mass expropriations of the early 20th century, including the Mexican claims, resulted in lump sum agreements that are of ambiguous legal import. The lump sums awarded under these settlements did not come close to awarding full compensation. While the eventual settlement in 1941 between Mexico and the United States formally provided compensation to the U.S. nationals involved, under that arrangement, in fact, the U.S. government appears to have financed those payments itself. It seems clear that the U.S. sought to resolve these mass claims for political reasons. Now, North-South disputes over the applicable legal rules only grew in intensity as decolonization progressed after World War II. Many newly independent states re-examined the merits of investment contracts that had been concluded under prior governments. Other states opted for socialist models for their economies, while yet others adhered to import substitution or encouraged expropriations of the private sector. These choices often proved hostile to the interests of foreign investors. This was the larger context in which debates over the applicable customary international law rules reemerged in forums like the UN General Assembly. That body, as it became increasingly dominated by ever-rising numbers of what came to be called the Group of 77, grew increasingly frustrated by assertions by Western states affirming the, quote, international minimum standard, close quote, and the need for, yes, prompt, adequate, and effective compensation under the whole rule. And that frustration occurred in the wake of government takings of property. 
The assembly debated the legal principles relating to the nationalization of foreign investment on many occasions in the 1960s and the 1970s. But among the most prominent discussions, one of those ended with the adoption in 1962 of an assembly resolution under the title of Permanent Sovereignty Over Natural Resources. That's General Assembly Resolution 1803, and it's in the PowerPoint. And as indicated in the PowerPoint at paragraph four, it says, quote, nationalization, expropriation, or requisitioning shall be based on grounds or reasons of public utility, security, or the national interest, which are recognized as overriding purely individual or private interests, both domestic and foreign. In such cases, the owner shall be paid appropriate compensation in accordance with the rules and force in the state taking such measures in the exercise of its sovereignty and in accordance with international law. In any case, where the question of compensation gives rise to a controversy, the national jurisdiction of the state taking such measures shall be exhausted. However, upon agreement by sovereign states and other parties concerned, settlement of the dispute should be made through arbitration or international adjudication. Close quote. States favorable to the whole rule, like the United States, voted in favor of this language and this resolution. And they did so on the grounds that its text recognized that international law, and not solely national law, governed the question of the compensation owed in cases of expropriation. The U.S. argued that the resolution's reference to, quote, appropriate compensation, close quote, should be interpreted as meaning prompt, adequate, and effective compensation, as demanded by the whole rule. But universal support for this view became impossible to sustain as the General Assembly adopted subsequent resolutions. And these came over the opposition of the U.S. and a number of capital exporting states of the North. Consider the following two critical resolutions to the Assembly's efforts in this period. And these were the efforts to establish a new international economic order, or the NEO. And they both were adopted over the objection of a number of prominent capital exporting states, including the United States. First is the General Assembly Resolution 3171, 1973, also called Permanent Sovereignty Over Natural Resources. And in that resolution, the relevant language reads as follows. The General Assembly affirms that the application of the principle of nationalization carried out by states as an expression of their sovereignty in order to safeguard their natural resources implies that each state is entitled to determine the amount of possible compensation and the amount of payment, and that any disputes which might arise should be settled in accordance with the national legislation of each state carrying out such measures, close quote. In the General Assembly's resolution of 1974, called the Charter of Economic Rights and Duties of States, or CERDS, says the following, quote, each state has the right to nationalize, expropriate, or transfer ownership of foreign property, in which case appropriate compensation should be paid by the state adopting such measures, taking into account its relevant laws and regulations and all circumstances that the state considers pertinent. In any case, where the question of compensation gives rise to controversy, it shall be settled under the domestic law of the nationalizing state and by its tribunals, 
unless it is freely and mutually agreed by all states concerned that other peaceful means be sought on the basis of the sovereign equality of states and in accordance with the principle of free choice of means, close quote. Now, although General Assembly resolutions are not, according to the UN Charter, legally binding as a general matter, they have sometimes been cited as at least providing some evidence of what states believe is customary international law. Indeed, some scholars and states have argued that some General Assembly resolutions, depending on their text and negotiating history, may reflect the opino juris needed to establish customary law. As might be expected, given the contentious history of the Home Rule and prior contestations of the law by Carlos Calvo and by others, the neo-resolutions that I've just cited from ignited debates about the relevant customary international law norms governing the protection of aliens, and particularly investors. Whereas that first resolution from 1962 affirmed that international law determined the level of compensation and that once local remedies were exhausted, the dispute, quote, should, close quote, be settled by arbitration, the later neo-resolutions came to dramatically different conclusions on both points. The 1973 and 1974 resolutions put the majority of states on the side of the original Calvo doctrine, where aliens were entitled to no more and no less than what nationals are entitled to under national law as interpreted by national courts and not by international judges or arbitrators. The Surge resolution suggested that compensation was totally up to the expropriating state to determine based on all circumstances it considers pertinent. It also implied that any departure from settling disputes on such issues outside of local courts could trigger questions under principles of sovereign equality and what they called the free choice of means, close quote. In the wake of these neo-resolutions, some argued that the whole rule was no longer valid custom, if it ever was. Considerable attention came to be paid then to subsequent international arbitrations, which addressed the status of relevant principles of customary international law. Among these arbitrations were those decided under the U.S.-Iran Claims Tribunal. That tribunal, authorized to settle claims between private parties and their respective states, as well as between the two states, addressed a number of prominent claims by U.S. nationals claiming that Iranian government actions constituted illegal takings of property requiring compensation under the Home Rule and full compensation under the Chorso factory precedents. While the Iran-U.S. Claims Tribunal's rulings are sometimes less clear on whether they are relying on customary international law or the Friendship, Commerce, and Navigation Treaty, then in effect between the U.S. and Iran, a number of its rulings on what constitutes a de facto government expropriation, even in the absence of a formal government decree, or what constitutes a creeping expropriation accomplished through a number of government actions, or what constitutes appropriate compensation or just compensation or effective compensation, continue to be cited today. One of those decisions was the Interlocutory Award in Setco v. National Iranian Oil Company and the Islamic Republic of Iran, which was a decision rendered in 1986 before the U.S.-Iran Claims Tribunal. The SETCO arbitrators concluded that the claimant must receive compensation 
for the full value of its expropriated interest, whether this was seen as the application of the FCN Treaty or customary international law, and irrespective of whether the taking was lawful. It found that customary law remained unchanged in the wake of the three resolutions that I just discussed, and that Resolution 1803 from 1962 was the sole resolution that drew consensus support, and it should not be read as departing from the whole rule, at least with respect to a discrete taking of property and not a large-scale nationalization. A second arbitration that drew a similar conclusion was the product of a concession agreement between Libya and a foreign oil company containing an arbitral reference, and that award was issued by a sole arbitrator, René Jean Dupuy. In his award on the merits in the dispute between Texaco Overseas Petroleum and California Asiatic Oil Company and Libya from 1978, Dupuy noted that while General Assembly Resolution 1803 of 1962 was indeed passed by a vote of 87 to 2 with 12 abstentions, it did draw the support from both developing and developed states. But the relevant paragraphs of the other two resolutions 3171 and 3281 that I've discussed, drew the abstentions or the oppositions of industrialized companies with market economy. Dupuy concluded that while the 1962 resolution expressed the opinio juris of states, the latter, the later neo-resolutions were nothing more than leg ferenda, hoped for law for those voting in favor and contrary to the law for those opposed. For Dupuy, these political resolutions therefore left the old customary law in favor of the whole rule in place. Now, both arbitral awards implied that a General Assembly resolution could, in fact, topple a prior rule of custom, uh, but it had to be supported by the same general consensus of states, including those specially affected by the rule that led to the original customary norm in the first place. It should be noted that other rulings, though, issued by the Iran-U.S. Claims Tribunal are more ambiguous on the applicable compensation standard. In Amico v. Iran, ruling of 1988, a majority of that tribunal noted, quote, the rules of customary international law relating to the determination of the nature and amount of compensation to be paid, as well as the conditions of its payment, were and still are the object of heated controversies, the outcome of which is rather confused. Terms such as prompt, adequate, and effective, full, just, adequate, adequate in the circumstances, equitable, and so on, are currently used in order to, quali uh, to quantify or constrain the compensation due and are construed with broadly divergent meaning. That's what the tribunal said. Given these disagreements, it is not surprising that those states who sought to protect their foreign investors would attempt to make the underlying rules a bit more clear. But such efforts, at least global efforts, failed throughout the 20th century. Attempts to secure agreement on multilateral rules governing foreign investment were attempted in the 1959 Abs Shawcross Draft Convention on Investments Abroad. They were attempted in 1961 in the Harvard Draft Convention on the International Responsibility of States for Injuries to Aliens. 
in the 1967 Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development's Draft Convention on the Protection of Foreign Property, and in 1998, when the OECD tried again, this time to conclude a multilateral ag investment agreement. All of these failed, and these failures explain why today's international investment regime does not consist of a single agreement or a single set of interconnected agreements subject to a uniform system of dispute settlement as is found under the WTO. But those failed attempts are not merely of historical interest. Some of those provisions in those draft instruments continue to be cited in support of customary law. Other provisions in these multilateral drafts contributed and were ultimately adopted in later regional or bilateral international investment agreements. The EBS Sharecross Draft Convention's conception of fair and equitable treatment and of what an umbrella clause is, for example, influenced later bits, as did the Harvard Draft Convention's exceedingly broad definition of what constitutes protected alien property. The Harvard Draft encompassed all movable and immovable, tangible or intangible, legal or equitable forms of property including, they said, industrial, literally, uh, literary, and artistic modes of property. Consistent with this broad definition of property, today's international investment agreements are not just about protecting brick-and-mortar businesses that result from a foreigner merging with or acquiring the physical assets of a formal local enterprise, or when a foreign company sets up a new company abroad through greenfield investment. Such mergers and acquisitions of existing businesses or brand new greenfield enterprises are what people mean when they talk about foreign direct investment, close quote, or FDI. But under today's international investment agreements, as we'll see, protected investment can include all those things in the Harvard draft, that is, indirect investment, that is, cases in which foreigners are not actively engaged in doing business abroad, but hold passively stock or another kind of legal interest. This is why it is more accurate to say that the international investment regime governs international investment, but not just FDI. But not all efforts to protect foreign investments at the global level failed. One prominent exception was the successful conclusion and the entry into force in 1966 of the International Convention for the Settlement of Investment Disputes, or ICSID. The ICSID Convention, the brainchild of the then General Counsel of the World Bank, Iran Brocious, was designed to create an institution that would facilitate the settlement of investment disputes, and in the bank's view, thereby stimulate capital flows. Today, that convention, whose 155 parties include many in Latin America, has done more to topple the Calvo Clause than any single development. The key to the ICSID Convention's success was the decision to leave the substantive rules governing investment, those rules that did not generate multilateral agreement, as we've seen, they decided to leave that to be determined outside the treaty, as by a contract between the parties, as in a concession agreement, or as in national laws, or by bilateral treaties such as FCN. The ICSID Convention concerns itself 
with the procedure by which investor state claims are resolved. It establishes a viable dispute settlement mechanism aspiring to appeal equally to states and to foreign investors. It's sought to appeal to anyone who wants an impartial forum to settle investor state disputes outside of host state's local courts. Parties to the ICSID Convention agree in advance to permit investment disputes against them to be brought, provided the particular dispute is the subject of a separate agreement whereby the parties have agreed to submit the dispute to ICSID. At the time the ICSID Convention was concluded, it was assumed that consent to arbitration would occur through an ad hoc submission to arbitration contained in an agreement between the host state and the investor after a particular dispute between them had arisen, or it was contained in a clause providing advanced consent to arbitration in an investment contract between an investor and a host state, such as in a concession agreement. But the rise of BITS and other international investment agreements containing advanced consent to investor state arbitration for disputes arising under them and containing consent to the jurisdiction of ICSID for this purpose has vastly expanded ICSID's jurisdiction. The ICSID Convention contained an important feature designed to entice states that were leery of international arbitration, such as those governments who agree with Calvo's assertion that investors are only entitled to national treatment and should only have access to national courts. Such governments were enticed to become parties to ICSID and did so after a few years by ICSID's assurance that once ICSID's jurisdiction was triggered, contracting states would be precluded from resorting to diplomatic espousal. ICSID parties would no longer bear then the brunt of angry and politically powerful demands from foreign investors' home countries. ICSID arbitration promised the end of gunboat diplomacy that was intended to enforce the rights of aliens. For these reasons, ICSID proponents argued that resort to it would, quote, depoliticize, close quote, investment disputes. Now, ICSID arbitration tribunals consist of three persons, one selected by each party to the dispute, the investor and the host state, and one presiding arbitrator selected either by the parties or, if they cannot agree, by the chairman of ICSID, who is ex officio the president of the World Bank. This resembles the pattern followed in commercial arbitration, except that under ICSID's rules, the majority of the arbitrators must be nationals of states other than the host state or the home state of the investor. ICSID contracting parties agree to recognize as binding any ICSID arbitration award that is issued, and they promise to enforce the pecuniary obligations imposed by that award within its territories as if that award were a final judgment of a court in that state. ICSID arbitral awards are not subject to full appeal, but they can be subject of a request for annulment. If such a request is made, an annulment committee consisting of another ad hoc committee of three arbitrators, distinct from those who heard the original dispute, considers whether the original tribunal was not properly constituted, whether it manifestly exceeded its powers, whether it engaged in corruption, whether it seriously departed from a fundamental rule of procedure, or whether that original panel failed to state the reasons for its award. This limited form of review falls well short of the kind of appeal 
typically applied in national courts by an appellate court, by international criminal courts or tribunals, or even in the WTO in its appellate body, which can fully review the law applied by the original panel. So this capsule history of important developments that have formed today's international investment regime would be, however, incomplete without some mention of some of the political economic factors that influence states uh, and, uh, and influence them to resist the new international economic order and influence states to embrace rules and venues to protect foreign investors. It is important to remember that the most powerful home of foreign investors throughout much of the 20th century, the United States, sought to protect its investors abroad with a threat of economic sanction. U.S. President Richard Nixon's 1972 statement announcing U.S. policy on economic assistance and investment security in developing states forcefully affirmed the continuing validity of the whole rule at a time when these were most contested at the UN General, Assembly, UN General Assembly. Nixon put protecting U.S. investors at the center of U.S. foreign policy. He announced the establishment of a special U.S. interagency group to review what he called wasteful takings of alien property by foreign governments. He stated that henceforth the U.S. quote, will withhold its support from loans under consideration in multilateral development banks, close quote, for countries that take such actions. Nixon articulated what became for many years a central motif of U.S. economic policy. This was the view later associated with the Washington Consensus model of economic development, namely that development can only exist on the basis of a symbiotic action between government and private capital. As might be expected, Nixon also proclaimed in that same statement his administration's support for referring investment disputes to ICSID. Nixon's threats were not idle. A year later, in his annual report to Congress, he made the connection between adherence to the Hull Rule and U.S. economic assistance explicit. What happened then is that the most powerful nation on earth, the leading capital exporter, warned states in the midst of the Cold War that they had a choice as to whether to choose a socialist Marxist path to development or the capitalist path. If they choose to seize the property of U.S. investors in their territory, Nixon indicated, they would face economic consequences. So let's summarize this uh, huge uh, history of over 200 years of the uh, rise of the international investment regime. International law's rules on foreign investment emerge from a long-standing dilemma, namely the problem that while foreign investors have many incentives to grow their businesses by going abroad, they face constraints in doing so, including the difficulties of doing business in a foreign environment, cultural difficulties, the need to understand a foreign legal system, the prospect of unstable political conditions, including the prospect of revolutionary changes of regime that could dramatically alter their initial reasons that might have encouraged them to go into a particular host state. For centuries, these difficulties have led to tensions between foreign investors and the places in which they invest. These tensions have resulted in government actions that have led to disputes between the home states of investors and host states. These have been addressed most often 
through diplomatic espousals, and on some occasions, as in the Jay Treaty between the U.S. and the U.K., through attempts at state-to-state -state claims commissions. FCNs became one tool under which states attempted to supplement their national laws to provide supranational assurances to foreign investors on a bilateral basis. Another was the insistence, particularly by Western capital exporters, that customary international law embrace rules to protect foreign investors, including to provide fair market value compensation after a government expropriation. North-South divides emerged over whether such customary rules exist and whether it was proper for states to be forced into litigating such disputes outside of their local courts. These disputes emerged most prominently in the UN General Assembly in the 1970s. At the same time, Western capital exporters, particularly the U.S. and European allies of the U.S., pushed back on that resistance by adopting the ICSID Convention and by threatening and sometimes actually imposing economic sanctions on states that failed to protect foreign investors. By the 1980s, when the U.S. joined its European allies and initiated its own BIT program, all the essentials were in place that would help explain the future evolution of the regime and its contemporary characteristics. The last power plant indicates those essential points. As the world approached the collapse of the USSR and the effective end of the Cold War in 1983-1989, there remained considerable disagreement on the applicable customary international law rules and little prospect of reaching global agreement on such rules through a multilateral convention on the treatment of foreign investment. Second, there continued to be lack of confidence by foreign investors about the prospect of successfully defending their rights before local courts of host states, and some resistance by some states on the principal alternative, namely international arbitration. And third, many capital importing states faced rising pressures, including from the World Bank and not just the U.S., to accede to demands to protect foreign investors, and those states saw little alternative to turning to such investments to pursue their economic development. The next lecture deals with the steady rise in specialized treaties devoted to protecting foreign investment, the rapid proliferation of bits in the middle to end of the 1990s, which coincided with the end of the Cold War. Thanks for listening.